Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. That's uh, Neil Young there and a song called uh, Harvest. Not only is uh, Harvest a very fine song, it's also a very fine novel, a novel which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2013, the Goldsmiths Prize and the Walter Scott Prize, and then it won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, and many of you will remember it also won the Impact Dublin Literary Award back in uh, 2015. And the author of that book, Jim Crace, is tonight's guest on Mystery Train, picking all the tunes. Jim, it's great to see you. Great to see you again, John. The, the last time we spoke, actually, was Harvest. It was uh, Harvest was just out. Yeah. And um, I thought I thought there was some indication, possibly, that you mightn't write another book. I've been saying for uh, for years on end that the last, you know, the, the book I was writing was my final book. Yeah. Uh, but it never turns out that way. What's happened to me, I think, is that I've got off the um, hamster wheel of publishing. Yeah. I don't take advances anymore. Um, so I don't have anyone breathing down my neck. If I want to write a book, I can do it like any retired person can. I can do it as a hobby, and that's how I'm doing things now. Yeah, you were talking about retirement. That's the word you were using, but yeah. but uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of nuanced sense. Oh, well, not, not in a sense that I wanted to take things easy, but that I wanted to get away from this unnatural world, which has been my world for 30-odd years now, yeah. which is sitting alone, the solitary act of writing is rewarded by the solitary act of reading. And that's kind of thrilling in a way. Yeah. But also it, it, it's, it has no colleagues and it's not healthy. Yeah. And I want to get out and wear a, a, a noisy shirt and do a bit of drinking and a little bit of gardening and a little bit of shouting and a little bit of walking. There are so many things to do. And I mean, I'm 72 in a few days' time. And uh, I don't want to sound grim, but if you're going to do stuff, it's best to do it now. Well, people ought to watch out. If you're going to be drinking and shouting and wearing a loud shirt, that could be trouble. They could, better could, watch out. You, you better write. Yeah, especially my wife. She's better watch out. <laughs> and, there, there is a, and there is a new book, and we'll talk about it as the night goes on, called The Melody. So congratulations on that, Jim. And happy Thank you. Bir- and happy birthday as well. Thank you. So, Jim, you're going to pick the music for us tonight, and I'm delighted yeah. that you found the time to do this. Um, your first choice... Funny enough, was also a choice, I think, of Eliza Carthy, wasn't it? Didn't she pick this song? I think she did. The Road to Mandalay. Yeah, I'm um, surprised that anyone well p- picked yeah. it because it's not really great music. Yeah, and it's also, I suppose, uh, Boris Johnson lent it a new notoriety when he started reciting it inappropriately. Oh, my God, let's take it off the list if he's <laughs> going to be uh, a supporter. i tell you why it's there. It was kind of... A, um, it, well, of course, it's a poem by, um, uh, by Kipling. Uh, when I was being brought up in North London, in, in flats, we didn't have any way of listening to music, but the man next door had one of those huge radiograms the size of a fridge freezer. And he had very few records, but he did have this record by um, uh, a guy called Peter Dawson, who was an Australian, but he, he sounds the plummiest Englishman you could imagine, um, recording well-known songs, the Arabs' farewell to his steed, come into the garden moored, the black bat night has flown. Coming to the garden moored, I await at the gate alone. But the one that I really loved was the road to Mandalay. Um, uh, you know, on the road to Mandalay where the flying fishes play. 
and the dawn comes up like thunder over China across the bay. And I absolutely adored two things about it. One was the sense of geography turned into music, and the other was the power of words, you know, where the flying fishes play. Um, on the road to Mandalay, I didn't know that road was actually a, a passageway for ships. I thought it was a, a firm surface. Yeah. So I loved it. That was my introduction to lyrics, to literature and to music. And I used to go into Banny's, Mr Bancroft's um, flat, virtually every day after school and beg him to play it for me. Terrific. Here it comes. <laughs> The Road to Mandalay, Peter Dawson, are the first choice of author Jim Crace, who's with me in studio tonight on the Mystery Train Sunday special, where we get someone to pick all the tunes. This is going to be a good one. Jim, that's a great start. Great. I can just picture you in... You know, you were born in Hertfordshire, however, is that right? Well, I, yeah, I, well, but, actually in London, but during the war, um, they turned Brockett Hall in Hertfordshire into a, a maternity hospital for um, women from London, because Lord Brockett had been uh, a, a Nazi collaborator and he'd been sent off to the Isle of Man to see out the war. He was a big friend of Von Ribbentrop. There's about ten novels in this already. There, already. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and I was born in Von Ribbentrop's bedroom and my father, <laughs> my father had one joke that he would repeat the whole time and the joke was, you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth but an iron cross. You were born in Von Ribbentrop's bedroom. In Von, Von Ribbentrop's that's bedroom. That's and that's the only time that I've had any um, uh, contact with the ruling class. Yeah, or... Um, Yes, but so Londoner through and through, despite the fact you were you were only you were only born in Hertfordshire because the war was on. Yeah, the, well, the, the war had just finished, yeah. but that's right. Your yeah, mum had yeah. Been shifted there. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. But I mean, I've lived out lived out of London more than I've lived in it. I've yeah. lived in Birmingham for uh, well, near I'm now near Birmingham, but we lived in the Midlands for for forty odd years. So well, well let's let's stay in North London for a moment because when you say North London to me, yeah, I'm wondering Arsenal or Spurs. <sighs> Can't I'm an, you tell, I'm, look at me? I'm an Arsenal man. Oh no, Jesus, yeah. this is going to turn into a bloody conflict because <laughs> I'm a Spurs man. Because <laughs> I'm that's my 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 geographical background is Tottenham, although we we weren't there in, yeah. uh, for very long. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a Spurs man. Yeah. And we used to go uh, with my dad. He would take me to the football matches. Uh, it would be all standing, and he'd lift me up on the front um, fender of the, uh, of the of the match, and and um, uh, we would hate. And I still hate Arsenal supporters. <laughs> they were great days of football fans. You know, I remember once going to an, an, an away match at Arsenal and uh, we were coming in the train, coming by train afterwards. And uh, just as the gates were closing, a man came in and it was Ted Ditchburn, who was then the goalie of um, Tottenham Hotspurs. So he'd got onto the tube as quickly as I had. There was none of this business of, of footballers going around by limousine. Yeah. He was just coming home with his grip bag and his brill-creamed hair, and he was famous for being able to catch a ball with one hand. Yeah. So my dad walked up to Ted Ditchburn, this famous footballer, and said, will you show my son your hands? And Ted Ditchburn took my tiny hand in his huge hands, his huge gorilla hands, and shook my hands. Now, that can never happen today. Yeah. A footballer's never going to go on the tube. A footballer's never going to be approached by a stranger. A footballer's never going to show his hands to anybody. So we've lost all that. Yeah. Do you know, um, I, was, I was listening the other night to Johnny Giles. You'll remember Johnny Giles. Yeah, yeah. He was talking about um, himself and Nobby Styles. And when Nobby Styles was, you know, a big star at Man United. Yeah. 
um, going home on the bus after the match. Well, they were earning under £21 a week yeah. in those days. I mean, it wasn't until um, Jimmy Hill came along and negotiated that £21 threshold for earnings. Wow. They were working-class guys yeah. with working-class wages and a little bit of standing in the community. And they were all locals in those early days. Why the... Do, do you know the historical context as to why Arsenal and Tottenham don't like each other? So, and it was explained to me that Arsenal, well, obviously they're originally Woolwich Arsenal, a different part of London, and they, Arsenal moved yeah, into that's North right. London. Is that what it was about? No, no, it's just to do with neighbours. Right. You know, I mean, you've got a good reason. Uh, if you're up in Scotland and you're Celtic or, or uh, Rangers, you know, you can, you can pretend that it's to do with Catholicism or Protestantism. Mm. But we don't, in, in North London, we don't have those divisions, so we're just, gonna, we're just based it on geography. Mm. The, the, uh, you go to your local match, yeah. and if you live in Tottenham or you live in Enfield or you live in Edmonton or Palmer's Green, any of those areas, you go to Tottenham because that's where the bus goes. And if you live slightly further east, you go to Arsenal. That's all it is. That's, and, and the point about football and all of these um, uh, competitive spoot, sports is you need to take sides. Yeah. And if you're going to take sides, you've got to have enemies. Yeah. So that's all it is. No one really feels it deeply in their heart that we hate um, Arsenal supporters. We just need to have that animosity um, uh, as, a, as, as a prop when we go to football matches to make it tasty. Fine. That's okay. We'll be friends, so. Well, we'll try. We'll try. Your next musical choice, and I don't know whether you've picked this deliberately because you're 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 here in Dublin, but this involves the Chieftains and Roy Cooter. I think one one of the, I think one of their finest collaborations because the Chieftains have made records of so many different people. Well, it's this is so one of the, one of the better ones, isn't it? Yeah. I picked it because it seems to me to be the twin, or or the grandson maybe of um, the Road to Mandalay, but at least it's musical. I, I can't make the claim out for the last one. I mean, this, I think it's a traditional Irish song, but essentially it revisits the same territory as the road to Mandalay and, and uh, you know, far away across the ocean, underneath Indian star, dwells a dark-eyed, lonely maiden on the coast of Malabar. That's terrific. Isn't and Ray Cooter as well. Yeah. Here we go. The Chieftains there with Roy Cooter and uh, the coast of Malabar. The choice of Jim Crace, the novelist, is with me tonight. Jim's picking all the tunes. That was a beautiful track, actually. It's and gorgeous, I isn't think it? Yeah. Both both groups at their best and a really good uh, yeah. good combo. They cushion each other, don't they? Yeah, they, but they, they lift each other, yeah. and they create something new between the two of them. It's mm. not just the Chieftains accompanying Roy Cooter mm. and no, the I... other way around. So we mentioned earlier that uh, your neighbour, I think you called him Mr. Bancroft, yeah. was playing. Uh, Peter Dawson and so on. So you're in North London and, and uh, you said, was it a flat? You said you were living in a flat? Yeah, yeah. And uh, what else were you hearing then? Presumably what was on the, the radio, I guess, on the, on the wireless. Yeah, it was the radio. My dad was a, a working class atheist, socialist, um, a curmudgeon. Like the sound uh, of him. Loved yeah. him, loved him. But he was one of these working class people that didn't say, oh, uh, culture, that's not for me. Art, that's not for me. Music, that's not for me. Yeah. So he would take us to um, the opera. It was always in working-class London. We'd go to Islington, to Sadler's Wells, to hear Doily Cart. Yeah. Or we'd go to um, uh, Joan Littlewood's Theatre Workshop. Or we'd go to the Whitechapel Art Gallery to see Rothko. I and mean, we never went to the West End. We always stayed in the East End. But we were, he was hungry yeah. to 
have some of his share of that stuff. What did, so he, what did he do for a living, Jim? He, he was a groundsman yeah. at, a, at a sports club. Yeah. And so um, obsessed with, you know, he had two magazines every uh, week, my father. One was the New Statesman because he was a, a socialist and the other one was the Lawnsman <laughs> because he loved looking after grass. So and I, I've turned into my father a bit. You see, uh, Jim, I, re- I recognise that in working class people that I knew growing up mm-hmm. that were hungry for culture and, and went for it where they could get it or where they felt comfortable. But didn't turn their backs on it. That's the important certainly thing. Certainly did not turn their backs on it. Yeah. But what, do you, what has happened? Because I keep hearing people who aren't necessarily working class telling the rest of us that, oh, this is, this is not for ordinary people. Ordinary people wouldn't understand this. Mm. Ordinary people don't read. Ordinary people don't go to the theatre. Mm. Ordinary people don't like this kind of music. Mm. I'm hearing that all the time. Mm. When did that attitude start to creep in? Do you think? I think it was always there, but it didn't matter when there was a real working class culture. Mm. When uh, the people are on the estate, they might sneer at opera or they might sneer at my dad for going to art shows, but they could play the piano a bit yeah. and they could do um, card tricks and they had lovely voices themselves and could, you know, could sing Frank Crummett songs or whatever it is. Yeah. So. So it didn't matter then because there was a culture, but it just wasn't the posh folks' culture. Now it seems to me that working-class culture, uh, I have to say this very carefully because, of course, I've left my class being a writer, Um, but it seems working-class culture has been atrophied, certainly in England, and uh, and not been replaced by anything except for stuff which spoon-feeds us, which is TV and film and such like. And would you see that as a, a sinister development, as in were there people thinking this is actually not a bad idea to have working-class culture atrophy like this? Well, I don't see anything as a sinister change. I mean, I, I, uh, th- this is going to sound really pious, but, I, uh, you know, there's been so many changes in my life. I'm now 72 years old coming up, and um, uh, so there's been lots of changes. And you, Are you going to let that depress you? You can't. Yeah. What I recognise is, and, I've, and this is a young quote, I'm going to get it wrong, is that everything, uh, everything where change is concerned, everything old... Uh, worth keeping um, is paid no it's the other way around everything new worth having is paid for by the loss of something old worth keeping right so so if you're going to have something you really want you might have to let go of something you would rather keep but you've still got something which is glorious yeah so I think we've lost working class culture but I think we have something else new something else exciting mm. so kind of the world is well modulated in my in my view in my optimistic view well that's good to hear your dad, you said Dolly Carton, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, would he have, again, I'm thinking of people I knew growing up, would he have struggled then with the, with the arrival of um, jazz, the arrival of Elvis, no. the arrival of the Beatles, no. all of that stuff? No. My dad, first of all, if there was any music on, it would be what was then called Radio 3, the, the, thir- the thing called the third programme, yeah. which is now Radio 3. And my dad loved Haydn and he loved Schubert and he loved Mozart, so we would hear those things. He also was a huge jazz fan. And uh, at the uh, sports club he, um, th- that, he was, uh, that he worked at, they'd often have jazz events and he would go to those. So he was very open-minded to all, to all right. those things. Okay. And what about y- your musical relationship with him when you started to listen to stuff of your yeah. own? Was there, was, there a, was there a dialogue about that? Or was there, oh, God, what's this stuff that young Jim is playing? This well, I'm going to jump ahead because I remember coming in one day uh, with a, a borrowed recording of The Times Are Changing from, uh, by Bob Dylan. And, yeah. uh, and I had an old Grundig... Um, uh, reel-to-reel player, tape player, and we played it 
to my dad in the living room of the flat. And at the end of it, he was in tears. Really? He was in tears. He was so moved. Yeah. As I'm moved now to remember it. So he got it. For all of his um, uh, structured, structural view of the world, you know, a world in which uh, we weren't allowed to have genes, but we could have chords. We weren't allowed to have comics with illustrations. We can only have, we can only have children's magazines with words only that... You know, all of those controls that he had on us, nevertheless, he had a huge heart. And he could listen to Bob Dylan, um, uh, The Times Are Changing, with tears in his eyes. It's, it's good to hear that because I know a lot of people, even people who were into music and thought they were hip and trendy, couldn't understand Dylan when he appeared first on the no. scene. They just couldn't get with it. No. They did after a while. Yeah, because it was, he was kind of the first person to come along with a, a challenging voice. It was harsh, you know. Yeah, a harsh voice. Um, Beautifully modulated voice, yeah. but, but not a classic voice at all. Now, you want to hear... We, we'll jump ahead. We can jump back again, too. We have a mm. list here, but we don't have to stick it rigidly. We might as well play, play this particular song now. Now, do you want the live version from the Budokan album? I do. What I want to say before, though, can I say yeah, something by before? All means, I'll, I'll set it up. You talk what are we clear uh, through today is that I... For me, lyrics are massively important. And because I'm a wordsmith, and uh, I get very irritated with badly turned lyrics... Nevertheless, there are some people who can transcend bad lyrics, and Dylan is one of them. Now, we're going to hear a mauling of the English language in the lyric of uh, the, the times they, uh, they are changing. I mean, for example, take this little section. He says, For the wheel's still in spin, and there's no telling who that it's name in. Now, what does that mean? For the loser now will be later to win, for the times they are changing. I mean, actually, if you try and read that out as a, a proper sentence, it is a mauling. But now, and he's only put those little words in "be a changing" in order to 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 balance out the um, uh, the notes. Um, nevertheless, he's the whole package, and like all geniuses, he's slapdash. And this is a very slapdash lyric, which is probably also one of the most powerful lyrics written in the 1960s. And why this version from the Budokan live album? This is kind of Vegas record in a way, you know. Ah, uh, because it's got horns on it, it's yeah. got some jazz sounds on it, uh, it's got a crowd there, it's living music. Okay, here we go. Thank you, you're so very kind. And that's how the Budokan concert from uh, Bob Dylan, live at the Budokan, that's how that show ended. The choice of Jim Crace there. Jim, the novelist, is with me in studio, picking all the tunes. Times they are... I haven't heard that version of it, Jim, in so long. I used to have that... I do have that album, a double album. It's thrilling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I hadn't heard that sort of very Vegasy, showbizy kind of version of it in yeah. a long time. It's great. But only in Japan, somehow or other. Yeah. You, know, you know, the cheesiness... We shouldn't say this, but... Uh, uh, it's a rare sound in Japan, that, that horn solo. and I, th I think it's terrific. I think it's terrific, that record. Um, we were just talking about Bob Dylan during that, uh, as, as that played. Uh, you know, your, your dad got it. I'm always curious about people who would have heard Dylan at the right time. Mm. You know, I heard him later. He was already a legend mm. when I heard him. I, mm. I already, there was a, the, this, the idea of him was already firmly formed mm. in my head that this was someone who all those cliches that he hates, mm. you know, the voice of popular culture, the voice of protest, all those cliches mm. about Bob. But when you heard him at the time, 
I'm guessing you heard him at, at bang yeah, on. Yeah, you know when time. those those first thing those first D, um, CDs, uh, well they weren't CDs. Those yeah. first LPs came out. I didn't even have a record player. I had to do it on. I had to steal recordings. Um, but uh, yeah, I was a political activist in those days. I still am, but I was a real naive political activist. Turned up at every demonstration that you could think of, and uh, and he was a powerful voice in that regard. You know, he was writing protest songs. So for me, it was kind of a no-brainer to be a supporter of him. But what was interesting for me with Dylan was I had to change my prejudices pretty so soon to encompass the electrification of yeah, Dylan well, see, and then begin to, to hear Dylan the poet. See, this was my next question. A lot of the people who came to Dylan because he was their hero for political reasons yeah. and protest reasons, they were the very ones who thought he'd literally betrayed the cause by yeah. plugging in the guitar. Well, I was there at the Judas concert. You were at that one? I was at the concert and he just stood and said, uh, you're a liar. I is what he said. That was his response, which is a very weird response in a way because it just seemed so firm, but also he, he did it with a very dead voice yeah. and you couldn't tell whether he'd been hurt by it. But the guy that had called out Judas, he, he was certainly silenced by that response. Well, and just tell me a bit more about that, Jim, because, I mean, again, that's a concert which is, you know, it's been written about so often. Yeah. Uh, it's almost a mythological event at this stage. Um, is it what what exactly happened? Did he play the first half the normal Bob Dylan acoustic that people were used to, and come on then the no, second? No, no, he he came out in the first half with the electric guitar, and it looked like a kind of concession in the second half when he came out with his acoustic guitar. All oh, right. So the first half was electric, and um, that was weird in a way because you didn't want him to retreat, and you thought, is that what's happened? He's now. During the interval, he's thought it through and he's, and he's decided to throw away his plug-in guitar. Mm. And part of you was thinking, OK, more protest songs, won't that be great? But the other part of, of you was thinking, the future has just been abandoned. <laughs> and so I remember coming away from that concert absolutely fuzzing, just not knowing whether it was my past piousness that was going to be serviced by Bobby in the future yeah. or whether it was something exciting and poetic. What did, the, what did the electric band sound like? The closest I've got to hearing it is in the Scorsese movie where you can go into a cinema and yeah. hear it at volume. And it's kind of terrifying. Oh, well, I mean, you know, it, 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 you, you just think about the, um, the self-containedness of, of, the, of the guitar man at, the, uh, at a microphone strumming acoustically on a guitar. It's all physical. It's all, it's all limbs and it's all fingertips. And then you are hearing, to, hearing Maggie's Farm which is reverberating all around you with some extra little, you know, it, it's turned up to 11 is what it's turned up to. It was truly shocking. And it was particularly shocking with Maggie's Farm because that's not a great song. That's not anyone's first choice. The lyric isn't all that brilliant. It's just a, an in-your-face challenge is what that song is. I mean, actually, if you then listen to that, that album later, some of those songs, like a Rolling Stone, for example, they're beautiful songs of great uh, expressed depth. But Maggie's Farm, which I remember as being the first one that he tried out on us, is not that. It really was a punch in the teeth. Um, uh, and of course, I mean, you know, I'm remembering in retrospect and I'm putting myself in a good light, but let's not underestimate how, how um, shocking it was at that moment because the saint, the saint was suddenly muddied. Well, possibly even more shocking was when Bob Dylan in later life, and this is to set up the next piece of music you've chosen, yeah. became a, a singer of standards. Yeah. And, and surprised everybody again. Yeah. And one of the songs that he sings in concert, and I heard him sing it, and it was magnificent, was a version of Autumn Leaves. Yeah. Now tell me about your next choice, because it's uh, Yves Montand. Well, let's just say this. I mean, uh, a lot of writers go to back to standards, and when they go back to standards, you're always going to get a good song. 
you, you've got James Taylor record standards, beautiful. You've got Rod Stewart. I remember being in a shop um, a couple of years back and there was this incredible half male, half female voice singing uh, some American songbook standard. And I said, who the hell is that? And it was Rod Stewart. I got all three CDs and they're glorious. And Bob does the same. Bob records um, standards and Bob Dylan does and, and they are really beautiful because the music cannot be destroyed except, you know, with, a, with an A-bomb. Um, one of the great songs, uh, uh, Autumn Leaves, in translation, well, we're going to have it sung by Yves Montand in French. It's a Jacques Prévert poem. So as you can imagine, in French, the lyrics are gorgeous. I was introduced to the tradition of the French chanson by my wife, Pam, who's a linguist and uh, speaks French. And it's one of the, it was one of the early gifts from her to me in our long marriage. Oh, je voudrais tant que tu te souviennes Des jours heureux où nous étions à Kind of perfect, that Jim, isn't it? Isn't it? It's just spot on. And he holds those notes. Remember, I mean, he wasn't, uh, first of all, a singer. He was an actor and an activist. But he was a big spirit, was uh, Yves Montand. Yves Montand. And you were telling, I didn't know this, he was Italian. Italian, yeah, Evo something or other, yeah. When he became a fallen leaf himself, his death was quite interesting. He just decided to make one more film. Uh, he, uh, it was the last day of filming. They wanted a few retakes. He did the retakes. They, they said, it's a wrap, it's all done, the film is finished. And he dropped down dead. Wow. Had a heart attack on the stage after the final retake. Now, that's a true professional death. That's, it's kind of hard to progress the show after that story. That's amazing. Um, so, Jim, education, yes. university. Yeah. I'd say, again, that was something that was important to your folks and yeah. something that, you know, given the political background and so on, yeah. the Education Act and all the rest of it, this was all very important. It was. It was, it was less complicated for my parents because um, in those days... There were no, all schools were selective, so you didn't have to. With our kids, we said you're not going to select a school. Our kids were sent to comprehensive schools, but in, when I was a kid, there were, of course, there were no comprehensive schools. So I did go from the estate to the grammar school to the selective grammar school because I passed the, the the exam, and it was a very divisive thing to happen. First of all, I was a kid out of water when I arrived at the grammar school. On the first day, they said to me. You're not going to have um, music lessons, or was it RI? You're going to have elocution lessons because my voice, I mean, I sound relatively posh now, but I, I was a real North Londoner in those days. Um, and at the same time, I was out of step with the kids back in, on, the, on, on the Pilgrim Estate where I was brought up mm. um, in Enfield by this time um, because the kids were, those other kids were all going to the secondary modern. So, I, I, you know, that made me passionate and intolerant about the education system in the United Kingdom. I've made enemies over it, and I still make enemies over it, because I've got no time for people, for example, in the Labour Party, who espouse uh, a non-selective education, but always send their children to the grammar schools mm. and the selective schools. So, so I was educated in grammar school, and in all honesty, uh, it wasn't well suited for a kid like me. I struggled um, and came out with a whole set of of D's and E's, not A's and B's. What were you good at at school? English, uh, I guess. Uh, being chirpy. Right. Being cheeky. Yeah. 
uh, wearing the wrong clothes. Okay. Uh, after school clubs, cross country running, um, uh, going to the pub at lunchtime. Going to the pub at lunchtime. Yeah. At yeah. school. At school. Yeah. Ah, yeah. those were the days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those uh, were the days. Um, you know, I was a chirpy chappy, <laughs> is what I was. And I was the only kid, I'll give you an example, the only kid in the sixth form, the only kid in the sixth form who was not made a prefect. Right. So basically the school saw me. They didn't see me as a troublemaker. No one disliked me, but they saw me as being uh, a bit of an outsider. I didn't fit, I didn't fit the, uh, the template. But were you good at compositions, essays, poems? I, I, I was a late starter. Yeah. I used to look at some friends of mine. There was a son of a Vic Gray, a son of a bus driver, who wrote poems and they published them. In the, and I didn't do any of that stuff. I was too busy shaking banners. I mean, I seriously was a big activist. In the movement, movement of Colonial Freedom, the United Nations Association, the Labour Party, a campaign for nuclear disarmament, Committee of 100. If there was a raucous organisation that I could join in at the weekend and in the evenings and at breakfast time, then I would join, that, uh, join in on those things. So it wasn't really until my political life settled down that I started doing any writing at all. Now, you went to university. Where did you go? Oh, I mean, just crept in to a thing called the Birmingham College of Commerce, which is the least sexy place to be educated uh, in the 1960s in anywhere. We, we didn't even have one of those university scarves. Um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it didn't offer its own degrees. It um, offered a, a University of London external degree. Right. Um, but it was just right for me because I wasn't surrounded by highly brewed, really intelligent eggheads. I was just... Uh, I, it, I was surrounded by the boys and the girls that sat at the back of the class being cheeky and had got low grades and had just scraped into a university education. And I was really happy in that environment because they were my people. Um, so, but I found myself there. You know, when I was at university, I read English at a university, uh, uh, London University degree English, and I discovered the people that I'm still in love with. I discovered Joyce and I discovered... Um, uh, Coleridge and, and all of the, the, the great heroes and heroines of, of, uh, of my own writing life, I discovered them. Had you any idea of what you might be when you grew up, if you grew up? I was quite pious, really, and I was quite puritanical, and I thought that if I was going to be a writer, I should be a journalist, because journalists were players, and they could change the hearts of men and women. And I still believe that. You know, you're engaging in a debate if, you're, if you are... are um, if you are a journalist, but if you live in a in a bourgeois liberal democracy, I sound like some kind of North Korean. But if you live in a, a bourgeois liberal democracy like England, where you can speak your mind, then novels weren't going to change things, but journalism would. So, at was it university then you decided journalism might be the yes, way to go? Exactly. Okay. So. And how did you pursue that? Um, I got a lucky break because I, I, when I graduated in 1967, something like that, anyway, in the mid-60s, I decided to apply to be a volunteer with voluntary service overseas or vast salaries overseas, as it also <laughs> meant. But I discovered it actually means very seldom orgasmic. Um, and I applied to them and I, and I got a job working in Khartoum in the Educational Television Network in Khartoum, which had just been set up with British and German aid money. And so... This sounds like a John le Carré movie. Now, I'm you know? sorry, yes, it does. It, yes, no killings, though. <laughs> um, the result was that in the, the, uh, the time I was there, 
I wrote TV shows, I acted in TV shows, I presented TV shows, I filmed TV shows. I mean, don't get the wrong idea. This was a tiny outfit um, on the banks of a Nile with no recording, hardly any recording equipment and a very amateur setup, and it, and it was school's radio. But when I came back to the UK, I had a CV. And I went to the BBC and I said, I've got all this experience. And they said, oh, fantastic. Will you write educational television programmes for us? Uh, uh, educational radio programmes, I beg your pardon. And that's how I started my writing career in the UK um, in the early 70s. And did you have that sense that I think you needed, that you were, that you were doing something useful? Do you know what, when you're young, you just don't see the big picture? Yeah, but you were talking earlier when you were at university and you, you, know, you wanted to do yeah. something that would be, rather than be a novelist, be a journalist. Yeah, when I was thinking piously in those early days, I was not yet on drugs. Okay. Um, uh, when I came back from the Sudan, it was that was the trans that was the the aftermath of the 1960s, where you know it was swinging London, but post swinging London, and I kind of got into that for a while. Um, uh, I didn't see the big picture. I didn't think I wasn't not being useful, but I wanted to get out of that, and I wanted to get into print journalism. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing was that the print journalism I got into was for a Tory newspaper, and that was the Sunday Telegraph magazine. And I was their pet lefty. But I was happy with that because a journalist, you know, I was a purit puritanical journalist. And what can you do if you're a journalist? You tell the truth. And if you're like me and you believe that the truth is progressive and you believe that the truth is left wing by nature, then it doesn't matter if you're writing for the Sunday Telegraph as long as they allow you to print the truth. And they did allow me to. I only came up against people who wouldn't allow me to print the truth when I moved from the Sunday Telegraph to uh, the Sunday Times magazine. And there, uh, it was a struggle. Right. But that, that was my journalistic experience. But you did that for quite a while, didn't you? A long were you? Yeah, eight or nine years, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I wasn't a great journalist. I'll tell you what I was. I was the kind of person that you would give a difficult subject to that the public knew nothing about and I knew nothing about and I could kind of master it mm. in a couple of weeks and I could dish that subject up in an understandable way. But I didn't have much style or flair. I was never a journalist you, whose pieces you would collect into a volume. <laughs> I was Mr Reliable is what I was. Your next musical choice, Jim, is what? Oh, Camille, but not our... We've got a Camille here as well, Camille O'Sullivan, who's a different Camille, but this is... This oh, I love Camille O'Sullivan. Yeah. I've seen her on yeah. show. Yeah, this is a different um, Camille. In fact, you know what? I think I discovered this Camille by searching for Camille O'Sullivan in a bookshop and discovered this one. OK. And why I like it is... Well, two reasons. First of all, French music has not... You know, despite um, uh, Yves Montand... Um, who's Italian anyway, um, French music hasn't got a great record. I, uh, they tinker around and they're over-orchestrated and their pop music, whatever you say about Johnny Halliday, is a bit embarrassing. But with um, Camille, here is really strong performance. Uh, it's invigorating and exhilarating. And I challenge you when you listen to it, what m musical instruments can you hear? Um, my, my French isn't great, but canard sauvage means, what, the savage ducks? Uh, <laughs> uh, wild dogs, wild, wild ducks. Yeah, wild yeah. ducks. Yeah, yeah, wild ducks. Well, I go for one, savage, yeah. savage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Savage ducks. Yeah. All right, canard sauvage. Yeah. Okay, Camille. Listen for the instruments. And that's Camille. 
Canard Sauvage from an album called Music Hole, the choice of uh, Jim Crace. So what was the instrumentation there, Jim? Well, there wasn't any, was there? Not at all, yeah. That was just multi-tracking and the human voice. Extraordinary. Jim Crace is my guest tonight. We'll be talking to Jim very shortly, not least about his new book as well. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. We're here until nine o'clock, the Sunday special, where we get someone in to pick all the music. And tonight, the novelist Jim Crace is with me. Jim's picking the tunes. It's been wonderful so far. Um, Jim, I must put this to you, though. You've told us this wonderful version of your life so far. And I'm laughing and I'm enjoying it. It's fascinating. But I cannot... I'll never forget interviewing you once about Harvest. And I asked you about the research you'd done on the agricultural implements and how to sow crops and farm tools and farming procedures and all of this kind of stuff. And you said, I just made it up. Mm. Mm. And we discussed that a bit. And mm. instead of research, you make it up. Mm. Have you made anything up so far tonight about your life? No. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I keep using the word pious about me. I'm a very straight, honest person. You can trust me. Um, but as soon as you stick me in front of a typewriter, all that goes out the window. Yeah. So don't ask me to type any answers tonight because I'll tell you lies. Right. But everything I speak is, uh, is hammered out on the anvil of truth. You see, I've never forgotten that, you know, what you said about, about that book because I assumed to be able to write that, you would need to find out about when well, you, you grow you, certain crops and the seasons and farm tools and agricultural processes and stuff like that. Well, there are things that I know about. I mean, I'm, my, in, my amateur interest is... Uh, is um, uh, natural history and, and bird watching and such like and country walking. So I've got a background. I've got a substrate of information which allows me to decorate. But I couldn't decorate about chemistry or motor car engines and things that I don't know about. Yeah. So if you're going to be a liar, lie about the things that you have at least um, got your feet up in yeah. already. Yeah, because, I mean, the worlds, the worlds that you have created in your in your novels tend to be worlds that you have actually created. Yeah. They're not yeah. actual places that you can put your finger on. No, no. and I do that because what I, I don't want to set a, a novel in a real city. If I set a novel in Dublin and I got all the details wrong, people would say, oh, no, that street doesn't, you know, you can't go down that street, it's a one-way street, you got it wrong, idiot. Um, uh, you would have, have offended people. But when you invent your own settings, the narrative itself can demand from the story anything it wants and you can provide it without any fear of offending any uh, uh, obsessive, some nerd on the other end who wants yeah, to Yeah, and yet one of your first loves was James Joyce, who did just that. I Every th detail I, was there. Absolutely. Carefully researched, which That's you right. must have taken some pleasure in reading and enjoying. Yeah, but, you know, there are more, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. And uh, I just don't skin my cats like James Joyce. OK. <laughs> now, for instance, the new book, The Melody... Um, again, conscious of um, your uh, research or lack of it and making stuff up, I yeah. went straight to find out the details about who the singer might be, etc., yeah. etc., in the book. The book's called The Melody. Um, and it ends with, I, I also ought to thank the people of, and you turn the page and there's yeah. nothing there. Yeah. Now, I know you're having a laugh there, but still, yeah, you've, 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 you've thrown us again. Yeah. What I like to do, I hate it when you... Pick up a book that's got an epigram at the front. Is it epigram or epigraph? I can't remember. You're anyway, one of those quotes at the beginning. And it's a, it's a Latin tag or it's a, I mean, I saw one recently, which was a Buddhist koan. 
And you know that basically all the writer is doing is saying, oh, I know more than you. You know, you don't speak Latin. You don't speak med- medieval German. And they never really relate well to the, the book itself. Sometimes they're a lot cleverer than the entire novel. But they absolutely yeah. are. What I've always wanted is an epigram and an acknowledgements which extend the fiction out of the pages of the narrative itself onto those pages as well. So to get the sense that, that the, the novel is leaching out, that narrative is leaching out into the real world. So I invent all of my own epigrams and I invent all of my own acknowledgements. None of them are real. And I, and I enjoy fooling people. I enjoy it when the critics will read one of my epigrams and, and pretend to know the writer that I've referred to. Yeah, but you see, the fear is the double bluff then. Because if I said to you, it says here, I am indebted to Mr. Al, the singer and the songs, a personal memoir by Richard Vince. Doesn't exist. Yeah, well, I, I guessed it didn't exist, but I'm slightly afraid in case it does exist and I really should have read it by now, you know? Yeah. Well, so you should be. That's exactly the effect I wanted. I wanted you to feel discomforted, and it's given me real pleasure to see that discomfort on your face. So, Jim, tell me about the melody, because there's, there's a musical element to this. Where does the music come in in this one? Well, you know, the, given that my wife uh, introduced me to the French music and I then spread around and I started looking at those chanson traditions through the whole of Europe, um, in, you know, you've got Fado in Portugal, you've got Rambatica in Greece, well, all of those things. Wonderful um, singer-songwriters uh, in the 20s and 30s in Italy, etc., etc., etc. And I'm thinking about that a lot because we, in our stupidity in the United Kingdom, are about to leave Europe. And some of the things that we'll be turning, including amongst the many things we'll be turning our backs on, are, are, is this serious tradition of songwriting that we've never quite had in that, certainly in that same period in the UK. Uh, the light-hearted note is something that we prefer in songwriting in the UK. I mean, while we were giggling along to, um, uh, 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 you know, musical comedy hacks and people like Noel Coward in the 90s, 20s and 30s, people that wouldn't take themselves seriously but were very witty, um, in Europe they were talking about death and love and politics with unembarrassed seriousness. And I've always wanted to have a singer-songwriter of that kind as the main protagonist of a novel of mine so that I could write some lyrics. So when you read um, this book, uh, amongst um, its more serious issues are lots of lyrics that I've written for this singer-songwriter, just waiting for a composer to come along and bring out a CD. Who would you like to do that? Is there anybody out there who would handle these lyrics properly? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have had some music uh, written uh, to, to, to my books. Uh, there are plenty of, um, of uh, ECM-style jazz composers mm-hmm. who I think would make a good fist of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we don't want to get into the whole book interview now because, no. because but all I can say is it's here, it's out, it's called The Melody, and uh, all the best with it, Jim. I mean, it's another fine edition, and I'm glad you didn't retire. That's the other aspect to it. You mentioned something there about leaving the European Union. Yeah. It's definitely going to happen, is it? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, don't listen to anyone that has got the answer because no one knows. I know that whatever happens, it's going to stretch and stretch and stretch for so long. It's going to be like an appalling family feud that even though you start feeling well towards each other, there's no way you're going to get back together for a family dinner. See, the Um, reason I ask is you're an old Labour man. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people seem kind of confounded and confused as to why Labour aren't actually nailing their colours to the other mast and saying, OK, we'll have another, you vote for us, we'll have another referendum. Well, I get that, you know, but what we need to understand is that, that when 
we were going to join the European Union. I was against it yeah. for internationalist reasons. Yeah. I thought that we'd be, we'd be throwing New Zealand to the wall so they wouldn't, you know, without our agreements with them, they wouldn't survive. We'd be throwing Mar Mauritius to the wolves. We'd be throwing lots of um, uh, uh, nations in the Caribbean and in Africa to the wolves. And, and to some extent I was right, but I wasn't always right. I mean, for example, Mauritius flourished after we stopped trading uh, with sugar with them. But this latest debate has not been on internationalist issues. Mm. It has been on nationalist issues. That's what it was thought about. It was thought about xenophobia. But the equivocation that I feel about the, uh, the European Union still was there. So I went along and I 100% voted remain. But my heart was only 80%. And this is the problem in the Labour Party because I think that, that um, our leader, uh, Jeremy, is in exactly the same equivocal situation. He's not an enthusiast about the European Union. He can see that it's a rich man's club. He can see it's a donut of wealth around which countries, all the countries outside the European Union, are falling apart. And as, as the European Union expands, then the falling apart will expand as well. So he, he's equivocal. And the voters can hear that equivocation in everything that he says. Mm. And that is why it's so hard for the um, Labour Party to come up with a policy which will dig us out of this mess. But I think it will. And I think that what will make the difference is that I believe that the Labour Party will be returned to power at the next general election because the opinion with, polls... With Jeremy at With the Jeremy. Helm. Because right. I think the opinion polls are telling us that. And because young people, you know, they adore Jeremy. I, I think that that he's a bit of a dinosaur, personally, and I'm a supporter of him. But my daughter, who's 31, she thinks, you know, he, he, he's an angel in a duffel coat. And, uh, and young people and all her friends support him massively. So I think he will get into power, and I think power makes you make up your mind. And I think that he will say five years have passed since the last general election, more than five years have passed since the last referendum. Let's have... We've just had another general election. Let's have another referendum. Okay. We'll get you back in a few years' time then, Jim, to talk about that. Cause that's Let's hope I'm still walking. Because believe it, we're watching that one very closely over oh, here. Oh, God, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a nightmare. Okay, your next track is Yasu Ndur, um, a yeah. musician from Senegal. You were in Sudan yeah. uh, back in the day. In the, uh, did you... Did you Explore the local music and the African music and so on when you were there. Well, the the, the, the traditions in the Sudan are mostly Islamic music, and mm. so and and it was largely borrowed from Beirut or from uh, or from Egypt, and so you know the, there was those um, those great big diva singing sing in the Arab tradition. Um, uh, the West African tradition is tradition, of course, is very different. For someone that loves good lyrics. Um, the discovery of world music in the 1970s was a godsend because that was the time when Western English pop music and American pop music lyrics started to dip, with some exceptions, into awful, um, monstrous uh, versions of the uh, and distortions of the English language. But you could hide yourself in lyrics in Wolof yeah. or in Yoruba and never know that, for example, when Yusuf Nur is singing one of my favourite songs, what he's actually saying is, taxi driver, be nice to tourists. Taxi driver, it's in the nation's interest to be nice to tourists. You do not know that that is a terrible lyric because it's being sung in an African language. However, the one we're going to hear tonight um, is a great lyric in English. Uh, it's a great lyric uh, in, uh, in, I think it's sung in French, and it's Yusun Dur singing Bob Dylan's Chimes of Freedom.
Chimes of Freedom there, Justin Undur's version of uh, the Bob Dylan song, the choice of Jim Chris, who's, who's with me in studio. Actually, it just uh, I must ask you, because the, I had a few Twitter exchanges with your lovely daughter. Oh, did you? With yeah. Lauren? How come? Lauren, uh, it was just after I'd interviewed you. No, it was when you won the Impact Award. Okay, yeah. And I happened to say, delighted, delighted, delighted that Jim has won the Impact Award. Well deserved, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I got this reply from Did this you? Pers- I don't know this about pers- this, this part of her called, life. called Lauren. And I, yeah. went, I know you. And I said, I met your dad. He's a lovely man. And she said, oh, thank you very much. You know, this conversation. Mm. But at the time, she was in Miss Selfridge. Yeah, yeah, or, right. Or, what's Not Miss Selfridge, that's a shop. Mr. Selfridge. Mr. Selfridge. Yeah, yeah. She was in, <laughs> do you remember when she was Miss Selfridge yeah, yeah. as well? But she was in Miss, at the time she was in, in yeah. Mr. Selfridge. And uh, so I was able to impress my family by saying, oh, that's, that's Lauren. Yeah, problem yeah. for me. Yeah, you saw her. You, you, she was actually on the, on the TV screen at the time, was well, she? Well, I, wait, I, I chose my moment yeah, to say, good, yeah, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's Lauren. Yeah. And, and of course, also in EastEnders as well. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So did you encourage the acting with, with, with Lauren, yeah? No, we don't. We encourage it, of course, yeah. when we saw, saw that she wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, but we don't know where it came from. Yeah. Um, but then that's the thing about your children. You know, they don't turn into you. They do turn into you a bit, but they also turn into themselves and themselves are something that you didn't excel at. I mean, there are no writers in my family or necessarily even storytellers, but you become what you become. Yeah. I've got a son who's a botanist, you know. Uh, I can see where that would have come from, but he's his own man. Um, Lauren is now, uh, she's just finished filming Vanity Fair. And she's also a radio producer, same, you know, radio presenter, same as you. She does a, a breakfast show. So she's um, uh, become something that is beyond my and my wife's, uh, uh, not understanding, but experience. Yeah, it's, it's progress, isn't it? it Some, is. Something happens beyond just evolution. And yeah. Something else happens as well. Yeah, it has to, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. It's terrific. Now, um, your next musical choice, and I'm glad to see it's Ian Jury and the Blockheads. You're the man who likes his lyrics. Yeah. Injury certainly loved his words. Yeah, and of course he, what he does, and you'll hear it in this lyric, you know, uh, Billericky Dicky, is he makes some terrible rhymes, but he knows what he's doing. He's being arch, he's being sardonic, and there's such exuberance here, and also a touch of venom to it, and also there's those kind of jazzy, jazzy feels. Um, listen to how witty the instruments are. You were talking earlier, you know, about uh, indigenous kind of English songwriting. and. Yeah. Uh, um, when it comes to, and I had this conversation with Eliza Carthy on the programme, and she, of course, from a renowned folk family, and we ended up kind of agreeing that that madness and the injury and, yeah. and the clash and all these people, that really is English folk music. It's specifically yeah. English. It's musical traditions. Yeah. It's very urban. It's not rural. Um, and it's playful. And uh, it's naughty. That's yeah. the other thing. It's the naughtiness which connects it to the music hall, I think. Good evening, I'm from Essex, in case you couldn't tell. I'm doing very well. Well, he squeezed every last possible rhyme out of that, didn't he? He did, and he got away yeah. with it, I think. Yeah, and Jerry on the Blockheads. You're right, it's, it's, it's old-fashioned musical, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, which leads us, and we just move on to it straight away, to your next choice, which is Madness. Love Madness. What I love about Madness is they celebrate and part of working class culture without sneering at it um in a madness song they like being at home having tea with their mum they like watching telly with their girlfriend they love their car they enjoy going into town for a drink there's no sense that 
they're living in some kind of squalor or they're common people, you know, in the pulp version of things. Yeah. They're regular guys having a good time, loving the people that they live, that they live with and loving the neighbourhood that they live in. And there's a, there's a cross-cultural thing about madness as well. I mean, it, it being ska music. Well, uh, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, although they were, I kind of, I don't know whether there's any side men were not white, but they were quite a, quite a white outfit. Mm. But oddly enough, this but there is are a, white guys who love black music. Well, clearly, yeah, yeah, you know, the, oh, yeah, the, the yeah. name the name of the band, yeah. you know, and the, and the covers they did. And so they hardly wrote a bad song. I mean, I, I listened to them all the way through, uh, and uh, there weren't any duds. No. But this one is not a, a, a song with lyrics. This is a a song which is just a beautiful, uh, happy piece of instrumental music um which i play loud when my wife's not in the house when i haven't got any work to do and i'm just doing a bit of tidying up and you can play it on a loop again and again and again and your happiness will only increase That's Madness there, the return of the Los Palmas 7. The choice of Jim Chris is with me in studio. Jim, you just mentioned in, uh, in passing there one of your interests and hobbies is birdwatching. Yeah. yeah. Now, to, what, to what level do you do that? The reason I ask is there's nothing I like more than walking around in the countryside and you see mm. something go past and it's nice to know what it's called. Or mm. if a goldfinch comes into your garden, mm. it's a jackpot, you know, mm. or a sparrowhawk or something, wonderful. Mm. But then there are other people who sit in hides with long mm. lenses and, and can tell one wading bird from another. And mm. all that. At what, what level are you at? Well, I can tell birds from the, uh, one from another, but I'm not a twitcher. Yes, that's what I'm, I'm not one of these people yeah. that's, that, you know, you hear, for example, that there, there's a Siberian warbler yeah. in, in Norfolk. And so you then have to walk out on your family, get straight in the car and get down there because you cannot afford to miss what is known as a lifer. A life, you know, one chance in in, a, in your lifetime to, to to put a tick next to that bird. Yeah. But I'd much rather see my familiar robin with you know the white fleck in its in its wing and yeah. and to recognise it and to know that it's my robin or see something in my own patch. Mm. So I, I'm very um, I'm a bird watcher, not a twitcher. Yeah, is what I am. It's, Although it's, I've had my twitching moments, I have to say. And what were your twitching moments? What were oh, well, moments? you know, when I lived, lived in Texas, which we've done quite a lot, um, I would uh, uh, go down to Aransas in, in order to see the cranes, mm. the hooping cranes when they come in. Yeah, but that's that's a special event, isn't it, for it, anybody? It is a special event, yeah. and they're a rare bird. And we had and we did three trips before we saw any. Yeah. And damn it, my wife saw them before I did. Um, so, you know, that's no good. Because this twitching thing is very competitive, isn't it? I mean, oh, extremely yeah. so. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there are things called the, the big year, you know, when you, you decide to see as many birds as you can in one year. And um, people will hire boats and they'll fly left, right and centre. There might be only seven or eight people in North America, for example, who, who are doing a big year in the same year. But it's highly competitive. There's no prize to be had. There's just the kind of the kudos of a small... Um, Esoteric group, mm. and it's all blokes. It's a very blokish activity yeah. at that level, I think. Yeah, but you're right. It's it's much nicer just to just let it happen. Yeah, you know, to come across something. I think that I think that knowing what things are when you walk through the countryside, you're not saying that's an oak tree, that's an elder, you know, that's a sycamore, and you're not showing off. Mm. But nevertheless, that knowledge gives you a certain coordinate. Yeah, as you as your eye sweeps through the scene, you're seeing what things are. Um, and we've named these things. It's not. It's not that is their name. It's not called. You mentioned a gold crest. It's not a gold crest because it. It's told us it's a gold crest. It's. It's a gold crest because we've. 
We've told it it's a gold crest. Mm. We've given it a name. The, I mean, name have, I, the name I like most is, you know that bird, the wheat ear? Yes, beautiful. Well, you, you know that you probably know this, the origin of that name, it's not, the, the wheat ear sounds kind of very posh and to my yes. ear, very kind of English, yeah. the wheat ear. Yeah. But it's the wit earth, which, ah. which is old English, yes. apparently, yes, for, yes. The, for the white earth. The white earth, which is the white fleck that it has. The white, in, in on its, its backside, yeah. yeah. The white yeah. earth. Yeah, that's so that, right. The wheat ear is the white earth. There we go. Sorry for saying arse, but there we are. And you, you get, you know, the sandpiper. Yeah. Um, in England, it's called the sandpiper. So down in Dover, it's called the sandpiper. The piper is, this, is the lowest rank in the British Army, the 14-year-old boy that dies first with the pipes. If that sandpiper flies 21 miles and lands in France, it becomes Le, che uh, becomes Le Chevalier, the knight, the highest rank in the French Army. Really, and so you know it can it can dem demote or promote itself in its nomenclature simply by flying twenty one miles. It's the same bird, but it's got its own name, and I love that. I like that. I love the naming of of objects in the nat natural world and how it varies around the world, and how each of those namings has a story attached to it. So that's the kind of birder I am. The one, I like I like um, natural history. Uh, uh, information that carries a narrative. Would you write about that, Tim? I write about it all the time. Yeah, but would you write like a, a, a I mean, specifically about that, if you know what I mean? Well, you I mean a non-fiction book? Yeah, I know it's in all your all your work, but yeah. would you write a non-fiction book on that subject? No, because there's so many people. I read lots of non-fiction books on natural history, and there's a lot of people that do it much better than I uh, do. I, I'm not um, a sufficient a slave to the truth. Yeah. To get it right, okay. And when I read a non-fiction natural history book, I want it to be true and right. Yeah. And I could never do that. You'd be making. I'm up, too lazy. You'd be making up birds. That I don't would. Exist, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Your next music choice is is what, Jim? Asleep at the wheel. Right. Uh, Bob Wills is still the king. I haven't heard Asleep at the wheel. You won't have heard it. Now we've just had a feel-good um, uh, track from uh, uh, from Madness, and this is a feel-good track now. I never thought I'd say in my life that I love Texas, but I do love Texas, and so does my wife. And we, we spend a lot of time there teaching at the University of Texas. My archive is at the Ransom Center in the University of Texas in Austin, mm -hmm. which is the most um, progressive musical city in the world, I think. And I'm so happy when I'm in Austin. Keep Austin weird. Keep Austin the, uh, weird, yeah. rather, rather than keep Texas tidy, which yeah. is the other thing. Yeah, yeah. keep Austin weird. So I, I love living in Austin. And if you live in Austin... Um, you're very aware of Western swing and all of those Texan traditions of music. And the best uh, historical figure in that is Bob Wills. And uh, the best current band with a wonderful sound are a band called Asleep at the Wheel. And why they're called Asleep at the Wheel is this is music intended for when you try and drive across Texas, which will take you two days. The England would fit five times into Texas. And this is perfect, open motorway, open highway music. Um, and that's how we always listen to this track. OK, Asleep at the Wheel. And that's Asleep at the Wheel there, and a song called uh, Bob Wills is Still the King, the choice of... Jim Chris. Jim, did you ever dance at the Broken Spoke? I did. Yeah, so yeah. did I. 
I mean, I, I'm, do, have you been there as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the broken spoke. And now, you know, when we first started living in Austin, you'd drive along that road where the broken spoke was and everything was low rise. Yeah. And the broken spoke looked like all the other buildings. Yeah. It's now become such a sexy place to live that New York money is moving out there. Um, and Lamar Boulevard, which is the name of the road that it's on, it's all high condos. And the broken spoke is sitting there like a rusty old wooden building, which is what it is. Yeah. And you know that it's earmarked to disappear. So if you want to dance uh, the Texan two-step at the Broken Spoke, get on a flight right now because I tell you next year it will not be there and something will be lost forever. Really? Yeah, it's going to go. Were, there were a bunch of places on that road. The, the, the Troubadour was on that road. It's gone. Think. It's gone? Yeah, yeah. Gone. It's shocking. Every year that we've gone back to uh, that part of, 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 of South Austin, uh, you just see, you know, all those, all the, all those interesting... Um, uh, food trucks that used to be there and all of those um, nice um, Mexican food outlets and little funny funny little bungalow-type buildings. They've all gone and it's all high condos. Now, I know Austin is not typical of Texas. No, it's not. And it's one of those places that, that people from here can feel relatively at ease. Absolutely. Comfortable, comfortable Absolutely. in Austin. It's known as the, uh, the blueberry in the cherry pie because uh, the colour of republicanism is red, cherry red, and the colour of uh, Democratic Party is blueberry blue. So it's the, it's for very long it's been the one place where the Democrats are in power. I have to ask you this, because a, a lot of people I know are less than enthusiastic about hanging around the United States these days. Really? Hopefully this is a temporary arrangement, yeah. but, you know, it's not going to be like this forever. But um, And a lot of the American people I know who live there... Um, it doesn't sound like the kind of place I'd find Jim Crace, put it that way, Texas. No, I'm, I'm surprised to see myself there as well. And I, uh, it was worse. The last time I went back, which was last year, I spent a bit of time there last year in Austin and then travelling through Mississippi and Texas. Um, all the people that had kept quiet in the lead-up to the last um, presidential election were now very keen to bend your ear. And it used to be a big advantage to be an Englishman in Texas because people in Texas adore English, English people. And so we always had an easy time and politics was never discovered. But in this last visit, the Trump voters, remember in Texas it was more than 50% of the voters, they all wanted to bend our ear. What do you think of our president? Isn't he just great? What do you people over in England think? And it became embarrassing. I wanted to hide myself because what's happening in America is truly ugly. Uh, and uh, So what do, yeah. you, what do you say, Jim? Because you're living there, you're a guest in their yeah. state. Yeah. Um, you probably can't say what's really on your mind. Uh, no, isn't it awful? That's an English thing. I don't know whether the Irish are the same, but we kind of feel that you've got to be, the good manners comes before speaking your mind. Well, you're not at home, you know. You're no. in somebody else's place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tricky. It is tricky. Your next musical choice is what? I am going to go now for a favourite uh, piece of classical music. Okay. Um, Paganini. And Paganini doesn't appear on everybody's favourite list because he's kind of dismissed as a bit of a showman. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was a technical wizard on the guitar uh, and on the violin at the, at the end of the 18th century into the 19th century and dismissed for that, those reasons that he was little more than a showman. Somehow or other, that to be a showman and be technical, have technical wizardry was to be soulless. In fact, part of the thing about Paganini was he was said to have sold his his mm. soul to the desert to the, to the devil because he was such a wizard. People said the devil must have given him an extra string to his guitar or to his violin or indeed other 
um, rumours said that he'd got an extra finger on each of his hands so that he could uh, achieve these things. When he died, they wouldn't even bury him in consecrated ground. It took 30 years before they would bury him in consecrated ground. But for me, this technical wizardry is immensely moving because it shows something glorious, the heights that the, the human animal can reach if he or she sets their mind to it. So his most famous work are, are the caprices, and we're going to play the uh, caprice number one in E here. And uh, it's just a glorious um, uh, delight of technical wizardry and soul. And that was the Caprice for Violin Number no. 1 in E, composed by Paganini, performed there by Itzhak Perlman, the choice of Jim Crease is with me. Time for a couple more, Jim. I, I just want to ask you this question, Jim. People listening to our guests on Sunday night are often very fascinated by how, how people work. If I'm right, you're the kind of writer who does not hang around waiting for the muse to strike. No. You go to work in the morning. Yeah, I used to be a journalist. You know, you can't phone up the editor and say, sorry, mate, I didn't write that article. And you say, that's OK, old boy. We'll, we'll run a, a blank column on the front page. We understand if the muse lets you down. No, you get the sack. And that was a very useful training for me, particularly as what I didn't want to do was to be one of those writers who sacrificed family and weekends and evenings to writing. I wanted to go to my desk where my wife went to work and then have finished before she came home so I had a proper family life. And that meant getting on with it. But one of the key things, I mean, one of the pieces of advice I always give new writers is you must be prepared to write badly if you want to write well. Because if you sit there waiting for the immaculate sentences to fall on the page, they never will fall on the page and you will never write a word. Mm. But if you splurge it out and get it wrong, next day you go back and you make it better. Next day you, after that you do it again and you make it even better because the magic is in the editing. So write badly in order to write well. And that is the kind of a recipe that I followed. Now, when, um, you, when you say that about writing badly, would you advocate, for instance, writing the entire first draft of a novel without worrying about what it's like, or would you work kind of page by page well, or chapter by chapter? Say? I've simplified it somewhat, because what you can't afford to do is to write your first chapter badly and have it ending up pointing in the wrong direction. Mm. At least you've got to have it... Um, you've got to get the compassing of, of the book right. But on a, on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level and on a fact that you realise that the character isn't entirely convincing and something's missing or you've over-egged a character, all of these things can be sorted out afterwards. Um, word choice can be sorted out uh, afterwards. You can even decide to go back to an opening chapter of a book and say it was written in the wrong tense and I can change the tense. But, going, but you, need to, you need to write it in the, first, in the wrong tense in order to realise that that is the wrong tense, in order to make the change. And have you managed, Jim, to do what you said there as a, a, a good way of working? For instance, your wife comes home and you're finished. You've put your stuff away, yeah. but you're still thinking about it. No, I'm not. Really? Yeah. Because I'm not an autobiographical writer. Mm. And I can leave my subject matter behind in the room. If you're an autobiographical writer, I was saying this very same thing at the library, if you're an autobiographical writer, when you greet your wife or your husband or when you take the dog for a walk or when you go down to the pub or to the cafe or whatever it is, your subject matter goes with you because yeah. it's you. Yeah. But when you're a writer such as I am who writes not from experience or from lived experience anyway, um, you can close the office door and leave it behind, which is why I don't think I'm a pain to live with. Please don't phone in, Pam. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting point, though, because mm. but you're not but even you're not even thinking about oh I'm not sure about that tense or I'm not sure about this or that or there's a little puzzle to be solved. I do, but not know? in a kind of suffering way, oh. not in a kind of um, bruised. Um, uh, narcissistic way, which I'm sure is something that happens to autobiographical writers. And do you do you get pleasure from writing? Uh, what a question! Yeah, because and the I don't I, know uh, what the answer is. Yeah, because there's a lot of, a lot of writers will tell you that it's like it's just it's really really just a sheer hard work and it yeah. just demands more stamina than anything else. Well, you know, it's not hard work compared to a real job. True. I mean, how long? How far do I don't have to get in? I, it, it now takes me 16 steps to get from my bed to my um, to my office. And I've been very lucky that to have sustained a freelance writing career all of my life. Um, but because it's a kind of a tussle, let's not pretend it's easy. If it, was, if it was an easy job, everyone would be writing books and no one would want to because it's easy. It is a hard job. It is a tussle. You've got to hold your nerve. And at the end of it, not everyone is going to like your work. In fact, no one might like your work. So there's a certain level of anxiety in it. So as far as that's concerned... Um, I find myself quite anxious while I write. But in retrospect, I always love it. All right, your next musical choice. This will be your second last choice, Jim, so choose wisely. Well, yes. I think that uh, uh, it's time to have one of the great uh, female singers. And uh, a song that she wrote herself. We're talking about Billie Holiday, of course. And uh, if you ever wanted to think that a lyric could change the world and influence the way people think. You couldn't have a better example of a really heartfelt song, Strange Fruit, which comes up with a wonderful um, image and a powerful image to, to do with racism in, in the United States. Also manages to be one of the best written songs from the, uh, from the jazz album. And that was Billy Holiday there and Strange Fruit, the choice of uh, Jim Chris, who's been picking the music with me tonight. Just listening to that, Jim, before I let you go, it's maybe worth asking for your view on this. There's Billy Holiday, who is a successful club singer and yeah. you know, a commercial star, yeah. as well as a genius of a singer, and she could write her songs too. Stepping outside the normal to write something as bizarre in a way as that song, yeah. unlike anything else. Tell me something a little bit about what you think about what an artist, a real artist, a writer, a songwriter, whoever, can achieve uh, for the rest of us, if you know what I mean. What's what's possible? Because Billie Holiday did something there and yeah. we don't know where that came from. She maybe doesn't know either. Well, I'm aware that I am, a, I am for example, talking about me for a moment, I'm a writer with readers but not with a constituency. In other words, uh, you can think of writers with a constituency. Black writers have readers and a constituency. Feminist writers have readers and a constituency. Gay writers have readers and a constituency. You know, I'm a white, heterosexual, middle-aged uh, man. And uh, so I have readers, but I don't have a constituency. So my expectation to change hearts and minds is pretty limited. But if you've got a constituency of people that, uh, that you are waving a banner for, then you have immense power. To some extent... Um, the writers living in pre-Iron uh, Curtain Russia 
could be much more powerful than any journalist or, or because, the, because the truth could not get out except through fiction or through song or through poetry. So in some circumstances, literature, music, all of those things can change regimes, can change people's attitudes, can cause revolution, revolutions in, in, uh, in understandings. So that's, that's what can happen. But that's rare. That's rare. That's a rare talent. Uh, mostly novels are published and will make no difference because they are um, read by people who already think the same as the person that wrote it. Jim, your last choice. Well, that's going to be a hard one, and I don't think we can leave here without having some jazz. Okay. And for me, it's a hard choice. I... Uh, I'm at my happiest and at my most at ease when I'm at a live jazz concert sitting in the front row with my ears between the cymbals and my head down the alto sax really in the front so deafened and very often when I go to these concerts um, I come away and think I could not be happier to see that improvisation and that extemporization and how things can take shape in front of your eyes, in front of your ears and eyes, including the mistakes that are made. But I don't want the CD because the CD isn't going to give you that. No wonder how brilliant it was that night. You don't want to ever listen to it again. Um, amongst the best jazz musicians I've heard is a fusion band uh, called Weather Report. And I could have chosen that actually I could have chosen a hundred bands, but I've chosen Weather Support and uh, Weather Report. And the uh, the classic of theirs is a tune you're going to hear now called "A Remark You Made." Jim, Chris, thanks a million for coming in. Thank you. Really John. enjoyed that. Thank you. Me too. We'll see you again soon, and good luck with the melody. Touch wood. Thank you. Yeah. In all good bookshops. Don't retire, Jim. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.